0: Let's take just a moment in prayer. Lord God, merciful God, holy God, we pray that your word work in our will all to your desire, all to your pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. When you start to study Paul's letters, you often find out that he is laying out a theological foundation before he gets how to apply it in our lives. Now, in Paul's letter to the Philippians here, he's been laying out the foundation that our identity is in Christ Jesus and the gospel, and that's where his joy is. And if you keep yourself on that foundation You have a foundation on which to stand firmly, but if you don't, it all goes by the wayside and you can't stand firm and you really then can't apply it well in your lives. So it's from this foundation that Paul has been building that we are now standing. And last week we started to take a look at a different aspect of the letter, which is how are we to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, what we found out is the the answer is in the gospel and in the unity of the mind and the humbleness, the humility of Christ Jesus. That's what we have been working on in the last three weeks. And now we're going to expand the application of how we are to live together. How are we to be together as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, all with that joy? And there are three aspects, three key components to the message this morning. The first is we are to work out our salvation, work out your own salvation, shining lights, providing mutual joy, and in mission with others. If you want to put it into a sentence, it would be like this. When we work out our salvation, we shall be shining lights, providing mutual joy, especially when we are a mission with others, when we are a mission with others. Let me say it again. So when we are working out our salvation, we shall be shining lights together, providing that light and then mutual joy when we are especially working with others in the mission for the gospel of Christ. That's what we're working on this morning. So let's go to the first one work out your own salvation. Our text says this, chapter 2, starting verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the Church of Philippi was a church of a generous heart. They had helped Paul out many times uh, throughout his ministry. And while he was on mission, while he was in jail, they helped the church in Jerusalem. So they were a church of good faith. So when Paul talks about obeying, he's not talking about obeying like children might obey, as it says in verse 14, just after what I've read, do all things without grumbling or disputing. I mean, if you're a parent, you know that children can sometimes grumble or dispute while they are obeying you or not obeying you. I mean, if you've ever had a child and you've gone through the terrible twos or the threes or the fours, Or as they progress, the sullen teenager years where they just drag their feet. You know what I'm talking about. And it doesn't have to be at that age. It could be all the way through life that people might do this. But as a parent, you also know that if you are out of the room, somehow their obedience to you just stops flat, goes short. But that's not the obedience that Paul is talking about, because really, if that is your obedience in Christ Jesus, what you find is this, that mere obedience with a rebellious heart is not the essence of our faith. The essence of our faith isn't obedience with mumbling and grumbling and disputing. Grudging and disputing obedience is not really obedience at all to God, is it? But Paul is saying that that church doesn't have just mere outward compliance. That they are actually obedient because of their faith. And not just because Paul is around, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If your obedience... And following morality in the, in the Bible is just an outward compliance. You are simply living by the law and not living by the gospel. If you're obedient, if you're just on your good behavior only when the pastor is around, again, you're living just by the law and not by the gospel. But the church in Philippi isn't doing that isn't just doing mere obedience. They are living because of their faith, because of the gospel, because of their love of Jesus Christ. So now, Paul writes something pretty interesting here. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what does that mean? I mean, is salvation part... Well, is salvation something that we do? Do we gain our salvation... Through our own work. Well, that would set up a contradiction in the Bible, wouldn't it? Because Paul also wrote famously, right? We know this one Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a pretty clear statement, right? So then how are we to understand what it says here? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Well, here's where grammar comes into play. And when you study the original language, the word work or work out has a particular verb tense. I know that might sound kind of kind of geeky, but you have to understand that it has a certain implication the way it's written, it is continually work out, not just a once, but continually work out. It it's, has the essence of a continuous, sustained effort. You could say it like this. Now that you're saved, continue in the process of your salvation. In essence, once you are saved, once you are born again, which is a one-time event, and it's a one-time event that God does the work in you because you're dead in your sins, and God brings you to life. And now that you are saved, continue on in the work of your salvation, of being conformed into the process of Christ Jesus. This is called sanctification. What you could say is this. It is... Oh, Sorry, apparently I got carried away. So there's a slide for you. Now that you're saved, continue in the process of your salvation. Okay, justification. Back on track here. Justification is when you are saved, and that's all God's doing. And now that you are saved, God continues to work in you. That's the process of sanctification. Verse 13 says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, that verb tense that I talked about is the same here in verse 13 for God who works, God continually works. And he works on your will and to work. Look, on our own, we are kind of like the terrible twos or the sullen teenagers doing the work of the Lord. On our own, we don't even have that will to want to work. So it is God who works in us that we have the will and who also gives us work to do. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Let's put it simply. If God has given you the will to work, you should work, right? This is what Paul is talking about. See, the problem is too often we have made Christianity a passive affair. We say, I'm saved. That's about it. I can, go to work, I can go to church, check the box. But if you actually study Scripture, Christianity is an active affair. We are saved by the grace of God and we thank God for that grace. We can't earn it. We receive it as a gift. And now that we have received it as a gift, out of love for God, there's work to do. Paul even writes about this in Philippians. We're going to get this later on in our series, but if you want to bookmark something, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Jesus Christ has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to lies what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Wow. Was Paul concerned that he was saved? No, he wasn't concerned that he was saved at all. But, not, but he didn't take his salvation for granted. He had an act of faith that moved him To do the the work of the Lord, and he did so in fear and trembling. So, what is this fear and trembling? Fear and trembling is the complete awe, the complete respect of a holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is the fear and trembling, the utmost respect. God. So Paul's writing to the Philippians about applying this foundation in their lives, and he says, Work out your own salvation. And in doing so, you're to be shining lights, providing mutual joy. So going on with our text, uh, verse 14 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, as we covered, that you may be blameless. that we are to be blameless and innocent children of God. Not those terrible twos or threes or the sullen teenage years, but children of God. Consider this. As we continue to do all things, that is, practicing all things in our faith with a heart unto God, we become more and more like Christ. Following his example, we put away all that is unrighteous, and take upon ourselves the righteousness found in Jesus. That's what Paul is writing about here. That's how we are to be children of God in a very twisted, a very crooked, a very dark generation. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 4. Again, if you want to bookmark something, go to chapter 4. He says that we are to put on the new self, right? Being children of God, the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ Jesus forgave you when i take a look at everything going around in our nation and how much bitterness and anger, and clamor, and slander there is. It's awful, isn't it? And now when I see Christians responding with anger, with bitterness, with slander, with clamor, of course the world's going to take a look at Christians and say, well, What good is Christianity? You're no different than the rest of everybody else. There's no light. There's only darkness in you. Of course, people are going to be dismissive because that is the example we are giving to the world. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if there is nothing transformative in your life from being in Christ, are you in Christ? See, you and I, that gospel reading, you and I are to be salt and light in the world. But if you're not salt, you're worthless. What does it say from our gospel reading? You are salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And from the gospel reading... You and I are called to be the light of Christ in the world, right? We're called to be the light of Christ into this world of darkness. From our gospel reading, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to be the light of Christ in the world, and a world without the light of Christ is in a world in utter darkness. Look, even atheists are starting to understand this. Now, I brought this up in uh, one of the Bible studies last week, and I thought it was worthwhile. Uh, There's an atheist, his name's Tom Holland. And uh, he's studied the ancient times. And from an article, it says this. While studying the ancient world, Holland writes, he realized something. Simply, the ancients were cruel and their values utterly foreign to him. The Spartans routinely murdered imperfect children. The bodies of slaves were treated like outlets for their physical pleasures for those who had power. Infanticide was common. The poor and weak had no rights. The article goes on How do we get there from here? It was Christianity. Holland writes It was Christianity. It was Christianity that reshaped. So much of the world, it reshaped how we deal with sexuality, that sex and marriage are to be one and the same. And by the way, he also notes, it's interesting that marriage of one man and one woman is now so derided in our world, it's ridiculous. We've actually gone backwards He talks about how Christianity elevated women, elevated care for the poor. I mean, there's so much that goes with Christianity. Christianity utterly transformed the world. So how do we do that? Do we do it simply by taking the morality of Christianity and imposing it by law? That doesn't work very well. Now, laws are good for a while at stemming the tide. And I'm saying we shouldn't have laws. We need laws. But laws themselves do not change people's hearts. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes the hearts alone. Laws are good. We need laws. But if we just take the morality of Christianity without the gospel... It just becomes all law, and the heart always wants to rebel at the law. And during this time in which we are in, in which the world is flooded with bitterness and anger, the gospel alone is needed more than ever. Because when people are born again, when their hearts are changed, you know what there is? There's joy. There's joy. So what's going to keep you afloat during this flood? It is very simply this. It is the word of God. Verse 16, we are holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Listen, during this time that we're in, there is definitely a winnowing of churches in America, of Christians in America. And the winnowing is this, that people who have let go of the word of God and taken on the word of the world, and there's a winnowing that is happening. And then there are others or holding ever fast to the word of God, ever tightly through this flood. As the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. So look, if it has been a while since you have been in God's word, now's the time. More than ever now's the time. I was just thinking about that last night and this morning. If you've never gone through the Psalms, 150 Psalms. If you read but one chapter a day, it would last you almost a half a year. And some of them are short, some of them are longer, so it could actually increase that by more than half a year. Or if we are since we are in the study of Philippians, why not once a week It's only four chapters, right? Why not once a week just read through Philippians, pondering those words, letting them soak into you, letting them transform you. See, and when you do that, when you are in God's word, then you realize that even in the midst of times of trouble, joy can be present. Paul writes in verse 17, Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offerings of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice in me. Paul says, look, I am pouring out myself for the sake of you and your faith. And even if I am poured out completely, rejoice. So, even with the times of trouble, even when there are sacrifices to be made, especially when you're suffering and standing side by side for the sake of the gospel, being a living sacrifice being poured out for the faith of others, you can rejoice, knowing that saints rejoice with you, that you can still be of good cheer for God's mercies are made new every day. Work out your own salvation, and you shall be shining lights, providing mutual joy in mission with others. I'm going to read verse 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I, too, may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me, served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So we get in this section of Paul's letter that seems kind of odd when you're reading it. There's all this theology application, and then, oh, it's about two guys. It's about Timothy and Epaphroditus. But if God's word really is God's word, there's always value to be found. So let's just explore this a little bit. Timothy. Let's start with Timothy first. Timothy's name means one who honors God. He was Paul's protege. In fact, Paul wrote, we have two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. Now, he's first mentioned in Acts chapter 16, where his mother was a disciple, a believer, but his father was a Greek. So we found out that he was a third generation Christian. His grandmother, Eunice, his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. Sorry, I got that mixed up. So, in every way, Timothy was Paul's spiritual son. He says in uh, his letter, 1 Timothy, Paul refers to him as my true child in the faith. And from Philippians here, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Look, He traveled with Paul into Europe following the Macedonian vision. And later, a a young but talented Paul was to be the pastor in Ephesus, where they needed order and worship as well as doctrinal correction because there was a lot of um, false teachers within Ephesus. I mean, you get that. There's, There's actually more we could delve into but you can understand the bond that he has, the love that he has with Timothy and how important it is to have somebody stand so firm that there is no doubt they stand for the gospel, that they are a mission with you in Christ Jesus, that they are ambassadors for Christ. And Paul was so encouraged and so strengthened by this. That's what makes for a healthy body, by the way, in which we all are standing for the sake of the gospel, not just the pastor, but everybody, the whole body. And it has been encouraging me to see uh, in this past year that more and more people are now standing, starting to stand for the gospel. Not just the church of joy, which is wonderful, but now for the gospel. That's Timothy. What about Epaphroditus? By the way, we only find Epaphroditus here in Philippians. But it says this, and I'm going to read uh, all 25 through 30. I have thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So Epaphroditus, what is he called? He's called a brother, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier, your messenger and minister in my need. What an introduction, right? How to write that in a letter. Mostly, if we were going to write a letter from one church to another and say, oh, and I'd like to introduce Joe. He's from Joy Church. But he doesn't do that, right? Talks about the depth and breadth of who he is. Look, if I had a eul if somebody was giving my eulogy and they spoke to me, spoke about me in these terms, I'd be fine. Because that's such great honor that is bestowed upon Epaphroditus. He was a service to the Lord. And he got very sick, still doing the work. Now, we don't know how he got sick. We don't know what the illness was. We do know that he recovered. And I think there's actually a lesson to be learned in here. Because Christians and illness... Some people will say that if you are a Christian, you will never get ill. And that if you do get ill, it is a sign of weakness in your faith. And I want to lay this out very clearly. I'm quite passionate about this. If somebody says that you are a Christian and you will never get ill, or that it is a sign of weakness in your faith, that is only good for the garbage dump. That is awful, destructive theology. Take a look at Paul's life. Paul talked about this thorn in his side, a malady that seemed to go with him uh, his entire ministry. Epaphroditus. Re- remember how strong of faith he was? He was s- sick near to death. Timothy seemed to have this stomach ailment. I mean, we could go on and on here, but don't let anybody ever tell you, especially during this time, that if you get sick, it's a lack of faith. You can tell I'm pretty passionate about that in a bit of a conversation this past week. You can also ask from this text, If Paul performed miracles, why didn't he just heal Epaphroditus? I mean, or even stopped him from getting sick in the first place. So I I like how what commentator put it together, William Hendrickson. The, The top line is miracles are always subject to God's will. Even in that charismatic era, apostles could not perform miracles Whenever they felt so inclined, their will was subject to the Lord's will. Now he goes on here, not on your screen, but on. He says, as to prayer, even though this is indeed a mighty means of healing, and we should pray and anoint people with oil because this is what God has told us to do. We should do that. That can often lead to recovery, but it's no cure-all. It does not operate mechanically like pressing a button. It, too, our prayer, is ever subject to God's will, and his will is wiser than man's desiring. Look, I've just given you a thumbnail sketch, a little bit about Timothy, a little bit about Epaphroditus, and some lessons that we can learn in there. There's much more we could dive into but they were in mission with Paul. And that gave him great, great joy. So let's put it together again. When we work out our salvation, we shall be shining lights, providing mutual joy in mission with others. It's a pretty simple message, but it has profound transformative impact in your lives if you're really taking God's word. And let His word work in your will to your work and His good pleasure. So, a couple of things for you to consider this morning. Are you working out your salvation in joyful obedience or with grumbling and disputing? How are you being a shining light of Christ in the world? And who are your partners in the gospel? would others consider you a partner in the gospel? And to all of this this morning, we praise God and we say amen and hallelujah.